the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Weber, Zahn, and Pope stick their thumbs into the Honorverse and pull out a plum. Get out the nets. The October hardcovers and trade paperbacks are swarming. Plus part three of the miniseries adaptation of Eric Flint's Islands, followed by part 27 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have part one of a most excellent two-part interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope on a new series entry in the Honorverse. Bain publisher Tony Weisskopf is with us, too, on this. The book is A Call to Duty, and the series is called Manticore Ascendant. It's set about 300 years before Honor Harrington's time in an era when the Royal Manticoran Navy is on the verge of being dismantled. The hero, Travis Long, is a young man not unlike the young Honor in some ways, but very different from her and others. We'll hear about that from our guest. It's really a good read, and it's a most excellent interview as well. So that's coming up. We also continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And Bain Books Audio Drama presents the third installment of our four-part audio drama miniseries, Eric Flint's Islands, set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric Flint and David Drake. This is an entirely original adaptation. It's a show, not an audiobook. We have a full cast of professional actors, an all-original musical soundtrack, and cinema-quality sound effects. But before we get to all that wonderfulness, here's the news. The October hardcovers and trade paperbacks have been swimming upstream and now have arrived at the pools of their birth in order to... Wait a minute, that analogy is probably not the most appropriate. Let's just say the October new offerings are here. We have A Call to Duty, book one in the Manticore Ascendant Honorverse series. We'll be hearing lots more about that one shortly from David and Timothy and Thomas Pope. And now out in trade paperback is The Chaplain's War by Brad R. Torgerson. This is a novel based on his Hugo-nominated analog magazine stories, it's the story of humanity's clash with a nasty alien menace, but it's through the eyes of a chaplain's assistant that the story unfolds. He's a POW behind enemy lines as the story begins. This one has echoes of Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game and John Ringo's Postling series. I really think we have a winner here. I think you'll like this one. We have an interview with Brad Torgerson coming up on a future podcast, by the way. And out in trade paperback is Beyond This Horizon by Robert A. Heinlein. This is part of our reissuing of every Heinlein we can get our hands on, all with new covers by the fabulous Bob Eggleton, who we've interviewed here before on the podcast. Yours truly wrote the afterword to this one, and I think you might enjoy my fairly provocative essay, even if you don't agree with it. So check out a classic, and then engage with me for a bit of pondering on it afterward, and in the afterward, A Call to Duty, The Chaplain's War, and the new edition of Beyond This Horizon, out now at booksellers everywhere. Check them out. Now here is part one of a two-part interview 
with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, Thomas Pope, and Tony Weiskopf talking about A Call to Duty, the first book of a new series in the Honorverse, Manticore Ascendant. We'll have part two and the finale of this interview next time on the podcast. I want to welcome David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Tom Pope back to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hey, Tony. Also joining us is Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf. Hey, Tony. Hello, Tony. David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse within which that series is set, beginning with On Basilisk Station. David's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies. David is also the author of many other Bane books, including the Epic Fantasy Basel series and the Hell's Gate series, which is going to have a new entry, I understand, and a couple of series with other publishers somewhere. David has had 17 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 7.5 million David Weber books in print. Timothy Zahn is the creator of the Cobra and the Black Collar series here at Bane Books. He is also the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Heir to the Empire, and more than 40 science fiction novels. His novella, Cascade Point, won the Hugo Award. And Tom Pope is the founder of Bu9, a collection of professionals assisting David Weber, and now Timothy Zahn, in defining and documenting the Honorverse. Tom served as lead editor for the House of Steel, which is uh, the Honorverse companion, and is collaborating with David and Timothy Zahn on a new series set in the early days of the Manticoran Navy, which we have gathered here today to discuss. The first entry in that series is called A Call to Duty. It is book one in the Manticore Ascendant series, now out in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. So, David, Timothy, this guy Travis Long, who is he? Travis is the guy who does great things that never get recognized, gets recognized for it, sort of like the inverse of Honor Harrington, who does great things and is recognized all over the place. I think of him as actually being more like Horatio Hornblower, not necessarily in how and what how and what he does, but in the sense that Hornblower always in an off corner or somebody else got the credit for what he accomplished. Um, and that was be- that was in, in Hornblower's case, that was because Forrester was writing a historic novel and didn't have him commanding fleets. But Travis kind of falls into that same sort of literary territory. Now, he is, unlike Honor Harrington, he is not an officer, as we began. No. Um, Tom and Tim really are, are taking lead on the construction of, of these books. Um, and doing it very well, uh, I might add. Um, and Travis is, when we first meet him, he kind of sort of straddles the line between the open quotes adult and open quotes young adult books in the Honorverse. He's, what, 17, guys? I think he's Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so he's just out of young adult we're still in young adult territory, but tra- but the the books transition quickly enough to to his his full adulthood uh, that this clearly is not a YA. That's just his starting point, um, and I think it gives um, I think it gives a very interesting window into the development of a naval career. We are in a very different era 
of the Star Kingdom of Manticore. This is before the the wormhole nexus, the big one, was discovered, I believe. Maybe Tom can can you situate a call to duty in the timeline and technological development line of the Star Kingdom? Yes, certainly. Um, so, Call to Duty is set about 400 years before Honor's time. It's in the oh, book opens in 1529 BD. Um, Manticore has been around for only about 100 years at this point, a little bit over 100 years. They've just uh, gotten over the plague. They've had a huge influx of new people, and they're really still, other than that initial burst, they really are still a backwater. Uh, the only threat to the kingdom has long ago gone away, and it's in a position where they're a peacetime star kingdom in a very quiet portion of the honorverse with a peacetime navy. It's a very different feel from, from honor's time where she's been preparing for war her entire life. I think of them as Denmark at this particular <laughs> moment, or maybe maybe even Iceland. Iceland would be a better bet, don't you think, Tom? Better comparison? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they really, the culturally, they just they don't they don't feel like anybody's out there to get them. There's really no reason to, um, you know, there's people arguing that they they hardly need a navy at all. It's not the prestigious command that it would be later, um, but rather something that you know, if you have nothing better to do, you go you go train the navy. Yeah. <laughs> so we're substantially before honors time. Speaking of the people that want to dismantle the Royal Manticore and Navy, another viewpoint character in the book is Travis's half-brother, Gavin Velicott, second Baron Winterfell. What's the relationship between uh, um, him and Travis? Well, Winterfell um, is Travis's half-brother. They've not really had a lot of interaction growing up. Travis has also had, not had a lot of interaction with his mother, and part of his drive to join the, the Royal Manticore Navy is that he's looking for structure uh, in his yeah. life. His mother has always kind of let him go free, and he doesn't particularly like that. I think that uh, the way that you guys have structured Travis um, is really, really interesting. Um, and I'd like uh, Tim uh, to, to comment on the, the way that he sees Travis growing and changing as a consequence of the childhood that you guys put together for him. Tim? Okay. Travis is, uh, looks for structure in his life, looks for, he likes following rules because that gives him uh, boundaries and such. He's never had much of that growing up. And so joining the Navy is something that it's a spur-of-the-moment decision, but it seems like, <laughs> something that will give purpose and and order and such to his life. One one of the things that I like about the way this is working out is that because the the Royal Manticore Navy at this point is not exactly what we might call a first tier navy, Travis <laughs> is incredibly frustrated by the folks who don't follow the rules. Um, in in the service because they're they're cutting corners they're they're making I I really like the way you did that Tim. Well, thanks. And Travis is not just a rule follower. That's I don't know if it's a contradiction in his character or just the way he's put together. But along with a rule follower and someone who likes order and discipline and everything, he also is able to think outside the box. 
which will come in very handy yeah. in this book and future books. Innovative as well as a stickler for rules. That's a really interesting dichotomy in the character. You don't see that in a lot of a lot of times when you have the rule follower, he's not the guy that, that is the big idea guy. Well, I think one reason you don't see it is because it's a difficult character to write. It's a difficult character to structure in a way causes readers to find both aspects of the character believable. That's one of the reasons I am so uh, intrigued with what Tim and Tom have done here. Um, the... They, this is a character who functions left brain, right brain almost, and he does it equally well in both modes. But what people see about him on the surface is that he is a stay-inside-the-lines kind of person because of his emphasis on following the rules and regulation. And, and they have, Tim and Tom have built a character who does that believably and consistently. And that's very difficult to do. So you mentioned that the Royal Manticorean is Navy is in deep trouble as we begin the, the novel. Can maybe Tom situate us with the political situation in the Star Kingdom? Uh, Iceland, huh? Iceland, yeah. <laughs> well, I, and I don't, and I, I'll admit, I don't know much about Iceland's politics right now or, or any time in the past. Um, <laughs> what I can tell you is that it, in the position the Navy is right now, it's a huge draw on resources. They have a, a number of ships that they built up initially to protect against the Free Brotherhood, this roving band of uh, pirates that had their own ships, so they didn't have a planet. They would just sort of go from planet to planet and, and um, rape and pillage and then move on. And so they, the Manticoran government had the money to build up this navy. They basically bought themselves a navy and they bought themselves the crews for all these ships. And the threat went away. They lost a significant portion of their population due to the plague. And now they ha have all these very expensive ships and lots of people with them and nothing for them to do. So we have a large and growing faction of parliament that is looking to dismantle or otherwise sort of gut the navy as a cost-saving measure in addition to other things. They want the peace dividend and actually, given what they know about their environment around them, it's not as insane as it was when our own politicians wanted to do that in the 90s. <laughs> but little do they know they are living in a David Weber universe and bad things are about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> the 90s is a coming, guys. <laughs> I mean, they, they recognize, I'm sure, on some level there are threats out there, but they're all so far away that they're certainly not going to bother with us because we've got nothing anybody would want. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like when George Washington advised the 13 colonies to avoid, avoid foreign entanglements, except for our merchant fleet at that point. We didn't have anything to entangle us in the first place. Manticore doesn't even have a merchant fleet. You know, their closest neighbors are weeks away. At, at, at this point. Um, so that, that's one reason I picked Iceland uh, as the example, because Iceland sits out there in the middle of the ocean, and except during wars when somebody wants to base ships there, nobody really cares what happens in Iceland. <laughs> and these ships that they have aren't even built by them. I mean, they bought them, right, from the Solarian League. Like, they're old, used ships. They, they, 
They are old. They're used. Some of them were bought new, but they're all at least 100 years old by now. They have exactly one ship that they've ever built in the system. HMS Casey is sort of the, the pride of the fleet or should have been at this point in time. Uh, but everything else is, was purchased from the Solarian League. Well, and I've got to say one thing also. The Honorverse has got a lot of unexplored niches and corners that were built as backstory when I when I built it for the backdrop for honor and the war against the People's Republic and everything else. One of the reasons, one of the big reasons why I wanted Tim and Tom in on this, the, the two main reasons I wanted Tim and Tom as collaborators on this and why I am letting them take lead in most respects in putting this these books together. One factor is that I wanted these books to have a distinctly different flavor from the 400 years later Star Kingdom with uh, with honor and so forth. And it's very difficult for the person who has created a society and sort of absorbed it through his pores to backdate it. Okay, he knows too many things that he just automatically does. So building that earlier version of it is very difficult if he wants it to stand alone. Okay. The second reason that I really, really wanted them in here is because the technology is 400 years younger, and it is also very, very difficult for the person who designed the tech base to then pull it back to a point 400 years earlier and make it both 400 years cruder and yet give the strands that are going to develop later into the mature technology. And Tom is seriously, I introduce him to uh, Const as the guy who knows more about the Honorverse than I do uh, because of how, how diligent he's been in putting this together. And I will frequently, while I'm working on a book, I'll call Tom and I'll say, Tom, what's the canon that we've established on thus and such weapon? And he'll say, let me check my notes. And only about four times in our entire relationship has he said, I don't have a clue. We'll have to look that up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so I put, I, put, I put Tom in charge of the technology, and I put Tim in charge of, of, the, of the, uh, the, the characterization uh, of this. And then they interact uh, with, with uh, Tom. Tim, Tim, will, Tim will say, okay, this is what I need to do in this scene. Tom, can I do this with the tech we've got, or do we need to adjust it? And I will generally let them work it out and only intervene if they're just <laughs> beating their heads against a wall because I can still say, okay, canon is, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. and let it go with that. But they are doing a wonderful job, and I really, really wanted that, that, uh, that difference from my Honorverse books. And Tim is one of the very best writers I know. I felt totally confident. Uh, calling on him for that side of it. Tom and I have been working together for, what, Tom, seven years now? Almost a decade now, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I couldn't have two people I trusted more doing this. Well, can Tim, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of uh, how you, how did you, David Weber talked you into this? <laughs> Let me first just uh, mention that uh, David is, not entirely correct. He does not just sit there and tell us what canon is. Uh, there have been several times where I have put something that will not work, and he has come up with a solution. He and Tom have come up with how to rewrite it so it will work. So he's not just sitting there with uh, 
you know, on his cannon, so to speak, uh, <laughs> at the start of plotting and all of this. Yeah. Uh, the origin, uh, the origination of this this uh, crazy idea was, uh, I think, my third novella, isn't it, David, for one of your anthologies, Honor Harrington anthologies, the beginning. I think it was number three. The first two, the first two were about Charles, yeah. and then the third one is is the is the Travis. I think that's correct. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So um, David wanted to do an early, wanted me to do an early story in Manticore, um picking up around or part of the, the the Battle of Manticore, which is where the, the Star Kingdom starts becoming yeah, less tight and written. The theme for that anthology, the one that you gave me that story for, Tim, was beginnings, and yeah. so we were looking at at mm. at. Um, cusp points, I guess, in the honorverse, and and that was you you were perfectly placed for that with with your with your piece. So Travis first appeared in a beginnings novella. Yes, yes, and that novella is a section of this second book, a call to arms, uh, but with a little bit of a twist. We can get to that in a bit. Uh, but I was working on uh, a call the, the first the, the novella. Uh, working with Tom to reintroduce myself to Honorverse technology and, as David has pointed out, retrograde it by 400 years, uh, working on all this background and stuff that some of it would show up in the novel, although it wouldn't. And uh, it was the last day of Origins convention a couple of years ago. I was emailing back and forth to Tom, and I uh, mentioned, uh, oh, by the way, you know, are, are you sure, David, that you... If after all this work we've put into it, you want a 20,000-word novella and you don't want a 300,000-word trilogy? <laughs> he called me later that evening. Who's um, shiny? <laughs> <laughs> it was an honest question, but I really didn't think he would take me up on it. <laughs> well, and, now, and now we're thinking... Further stories, we've got a whole bunch of other ideas. Tom want, desperately wants to take the series to Haven at some point. I desperately oh, yeah. want to see what Ponder Monty are doing. So, um, yep. yeah, I think we've got a career uh, for Travis uh, pretty well uh, set up in front of us. Yeah. Well, and I like the... I like the um, we've, we've talked about and found ways for him to have a truly significant impact on the history and the future of the of the Star Kingdom, and yet never become one of the iconic uh, figures of, of of the of the Royal Manticore and Navy's hagiography. Um, it, in some ways, looking at what we have planned out here, what he accomplishes in his own life is more significant than what Edward Saganami accomplished in his life. But Saganami, because of the nature of what he did, became an inspiration to generations of Royal Manticoran officers, while Travis's actions, because they're lost in the shadows, are buried in the archives somewhere. He's sort of like the, the anti-Flashman then. Yeah, he is kind of, and, it, and, and see, and I, what it does, one of the things that it does that I really like, Tony with an I, um, is that it breaks the, the, the honor, everybody knows who she is, she's this heroic 
huge towering figure. Travis is different from her in that respect. No less worthy, no less important, and yet it's a it's a totally different tone, a different feel, which is one of the things that I really like about the book. Um because it works equally well, but it's different. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And and it he is going to go through his life not being remembered by history, but being well known by the people that matter, at least to him. And that's yes. that's the yeah. he's been going. It seems like that there in the book there's there's the navy that is uh that's full of slackers and things that are falling apart. And then within that Navy, there's this kernel of really competent people who recognize that uh, you have to have some competence and they're just going to be the ones that are going to do it, even if they don't get rewarded for it. Yeah, there's a mix of unsung heroes. Slackers, the political appointees, and those who really know what they're doing and are there to do it. Honor, when she initially joins the Navy, is dealing with the the aftershocks uh, uh, or the, the, the after echo of the patronage system uh, within the Navy. And um, I think Tom has done uh, an especially good job about structuring how that process transitions um, in, the, in the Royal Manticoran Navy. Um, Tom, you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, it's an interesting process because we're looking at it right in the very beginning and we're starting to see a lot of these early dynasties coalesce and the idea coalesce. Um, honestly, one of my favorite characters in this book is the one of the, the one that I absolutely despised uh, while we were working on the short story, which is um, Admiral Locatelli, because he's growing into... Um, over the course of the next couple of books, you know, you're going to see him, I think, grow in really interesting ways into someone who's, in some ways, becomes part of the catalyst for that kind of dynasty, and in other ways is one of the strongest proponents for a navy based on merit. And so he has a really interesting, he has almost a, um, um, an Overstegen-like feel in some ways. I was going to say that uh, just before you mentioned Overstegen, I was thinking that he is kind of a 16th century uh, Overstegen. And one of the interesting things about it is that we're only 100 years into the Star Kingdom, so all of these uh, uh, nobles um, are no more than two generations, if that, exactly. from the creation yep. Yep. of the Star Kingdom. So Locatelli is in on the ground floor, whereas Overstegen is in on the fully mature aristocratic system floor. And, and the, exactly. the, 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 the resonances between the two characters are very um, intriguing to me. I want, I, want Locatelli, I want Locatelli to have a scene with an Overstegen. Okay, we just got to do that at some point. <laughs> Make a note, Tom. Make a note on that one. <laughs> one of the things that I liked about doing the novella and then moving on to the novels is, as Tom says, uh, Admiral Locatelli does not come off all that well in the novella. However, part of that is because you see everything from Travis's point of view. In the novel, we've got room to go to other point of view, points of view, and we will see that things are not quite as clear-cut
cut and black and white is Travis Thiessen. There's a lot of stuff going on under the surface and in the background. And Locatelli will come out as a much better, more rounded character than Travis thinks he is. The relationship for the Honor Harrington books here that, to me, is the Travis Locatelli is uh, Honor and Sanjay Hemphill, the way that they initially... The Honor, as a junior cruiser captain, has a very different view of Locatelli from Honor as a fleet admiral. I mean, of 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 Sanja uh, Hemphill as as fleet admiral Harrington does, because she now knows a lot of stuff she didn't know then, and this is sort of the situation that Travis is in with with Locatelli. I think. Would you say that yeah. was fair, Tim? Yeah, that's that's fair, and there are things he may never know, but the reader will yeah. figure them yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Travis may never like the man, but I think the reader, the readers will grow to grow to respect him quite a bit. Yeah, but it's hard to blame Travis for not liking the man. Either. <laughs> 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 if I were Travis, I would like him a bit. <laughs> so there's that. That was part one of two parts of our interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and. Thomas Pope, as well as Tony Weiskopf. We'll have the finale next time on the podcast. Now here is part three of the four-part miniseries presentation of Islands. Enjoy and let us know what you think, please. Bane Audio Drama from Bane Books. The heart of science fiction and fantasy. Bane Audio Drama presents Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint, set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric Flint and David Drake. I am Luke of Elephonesis, the aide-de-camp and chief manservant to Calipodius Serenites, a captain in the Roman army of General Belisarius and a son of the wealthy Serenites clan of Constantinople. When he departed Constantinople for the front, Calipodius left behind a new wife. They had wed in an arranged marriage to unite two aristocratic families, one ancient and poor, the other newly risen and filthy rich. Anna spent much of her youth in the library of a convent, reading about the many changes that had come to the world when the talisman from the future had come back in time to 530 AD, bringing knowledge. She had wanted a different life, if not of adventure, then at least a life of cloistered learning. Instead, she'd been cast into the ancient role of ornamental wife a role she despised. So Anna decided that if change wasn't coming to her, she would go and find it, even if she had to cross half a world to do so. Cool cloths over here. This man is burning with fever. Right away, Doctor. And send a cleanup team to take care of this vomit. It can't be left to fester. Yes, Doctor. Right away, sir. 
Your changes have transformed this place, girl. Again, not my changes. Things I read in a book by a very smart woman. Basic medical and sanitation practices. Anyone can apply them. But not anyone can cut through the ignorance and get it done. It doesn't hurt that we carry around some fairly brutal-looking enforcers. Not merely brutal-looking, your ladyship. True enough, Phyllis. What's this? Look what I found digging through the medicinal herbs. Let me go! Let me go, you stupid Greek demon! She can't be more than twelve and already on the way to a life of crime. I was just trying to find medicine for my poor sick mother. Besides, we heard that the wife of Calipodius was here and we wanted to catch a glimpse of her. We? Here are the others. I believe we caught them all. Red-handed, I might add. You're breaking my arm! Assassin! Killer of children! Let me go! I'm a leper! Unclean! Unclean! <laughs> you seem remarkably spry for a leper. Well, I just caught it. I believe I will take my chances. They're from the orphanage. Escapees, no doubt. See the brands on their hands and the back of the neck. Yes. But now they are assistant orderlies in my service. What? No! What is your name? What's it to you? Tell me your name or I'll have Illis twist a finger each time I have to ask again. He is very good at twisting fingers. Sunila. Well, Sunila, you and these others will be paid a drachma a week to start with. You can start now. Wearing those rags? You have a point. She'll spread infection. I want you four back here tomorrow. Katamanes will give you an advance on your wages and find you food and a decent place to stay tonight. I will. You will. One drachma. There's more where that came from. Tomorrow morning after sunrise. Do you hear me? I don't want to have to send Illis to find you. It won't be pretty. All right. We will come. <sighs> come on, a lot of you. I'll get your money. Then I'll take you to the market so I can make sure you do what the lady says and eat. Now get the move on! Strange are the ways of blind Calipodius's wife. Your legend is growing. What legend? Do you not know, girl? They call you the angel. I am no angel. What you are is different. You have no idea how important that can be to a man who does nothing day after day than toil under the sun. To a woman who does nothing day after day but wash clothes and carry water. And what is an angel in the end but something completely different? In this outfit? <laughs> Your dress has seen better days, lady. Stains of blood, vomit, and urine on it. If my mother could only see me now. She would be proud. You don't know my mother. Illis, we're going to make Calipodius's wife's service official. We'll start with something to set us apart. Yes, new uniforms. Uniforms? We've got dozens of people working for us now. It will cost a fortune. My husband is rich. He can afford it. Need I remind you, girl, that he is not here. You are separated from most of your wealth by a thousand miles, and my brother, myself, and Abdul don't have any to speak of. Which is why we need a banker. I'll use my husband's name as collateral. What exactly do you mean by banker? Someone who lends money. Ah, a money changer. No, no, a real banker. Someone who finances armies. And may I ask why you might need enough money to finance an army? Because that's exactly what we're going to do, Illis. I confess I have no idea what you are talking about, girl. If you were a Banker in Barbaricum, where would you be? Again, no clue. At the local commander's headquarters. 
There I can help you. The local commander is our ally, the Emperor of Persia. Let me see, I'll need something fancy. No, I won't. <laughs> this vomit-stained dress will do perfectly. So, you are the one. Pleased to meet you, your majesty. Uh, the pleasure is mine. And this is my chief wife, Irina. Your highness. To live in such days when legends walk among us. I am just a girl from Constantinople, your highness. Of course you are. Now come, drink, relax, then join us at the table. I have a sumptuous feast prepared tonight. Irina oversees the cooking staff. It is one of her many gifts. Excuse me. I must have better music or I'll have those players flogged. You there, pick it up. Come, welcome to our humble abode, Anna Saronites. May you live a thousand years and walk the earth in happiness. A thousand years? Thank you, I guess. <laughs> I think we're going to get along quite well. Your Highness, that meal was truly extraordinary. Probably the most delicious meal I've ever had in my life. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. Now please, call me Irina. I hardly think... Very well, Irina. That's better. Now we are women talking to one another. Irina, what did you mean when you said legends walk among us? I am no legend. Pardon me, dear Anna, but Khuzrao and I, we are experts on legends. Truth be told, I often think that is all kingship really is, knowing how to make legends. Interesting. Yes, but uh, keep it a secret. It wouldn't do for our noble Sardaran and Baziron to discover that their emperor is really only a common manufacturer and his wife but a carpenter's daughter. We don't need another rebellion this year. No, of course not. Ugh, I've spilled the wine on my sleeve. This dress is becoming disgusting. Oh, but it is perfect. Don't even try to remove the stain. By next week, it will be the blood of a dying man brought back to life by the touch of your hand. Ask anyone and they'll swear to it. Irina, you have given me something to think about. You have shared your secret. Now I will share mine. On the day my husband left for the war, I felt my dreams were crushed. I would be stuck at home forever. They are worse fates. Not for a woman like me. There's something inside me. I, I can't explain it. I yearn to do something. Something else. Something more. I do understand. The problem is, I don't know what it is. I'm making everything up as I go along. Welcome to the world of the free. We live our own lives here, not someone else's. Anna... I would dearly love to help you find this thing you know not what you are seeking. Do you need anything? As a matter of fact, I have been searching for a banker. <laughs> a banker? This palace is lousy with them. But I shall point you to the most trustworthy. His name is Pulinda. A Punjabi? That doesn't matter. His money spends as well as any from Persia or Rome. 
I ought to know. Do you think he will give me a fair rate? You are the wife of Calopodius the Blind. You are Anna Saronites of the wife's service. I think he might just give you the money for the goodwill it will bring him. <laughs> well, perhaps charge you a reasonable interest on it, at least. <laughs> <laughs> It's stiff. Yes, you have to wear it. Everyone in the wife's service has to wear the new uniforms. Especially me. I am so happy to be out of that dress. The seamstress is here for the other orphans' fittings. You look pretty commanding in that new uniform yourself, Illith. It is. I've never owned clothes this good and this color. Maroon. It must be horribly expensive. Again, my husband is rich. He can afford it. It is good to see you out of that tent you were carrying around and calling a dress girl. I couldn't agree more. This hospital seems to be running smoothly now. After we get the uniforms for the service here, shall we leave Barbaricum for the Upper Indus? Yes, to the Iron Triangle. But we'll make a few stops on the way. Stops? What do you mean? Every field hospital along the way. Girl, there are dozens. Perhaps every village as well. There are hundreds. Well, maybe only the larger ones. And may I ask why? I suppose I'm embracing the legend. This wife they're all talking about. Although I still have no true idea what it's about. As you say, girl. As you say. Well, let's have it. Hand it to Luke there. Luke, what message has she sent this time? Hmm, interesting. Don't tease a blind man. Read it. It says, Why talisman medical precepts not translated into Persian? Stop. Instruct emperor of Persia to discipline idiots running his hospitals. Stop. Do it. Well, the Persian translation anyway. Then find me a diplomatic way to say the rest to Kushrao. Yes, general. Sir, here comes another one from Barbarica. Read to me, Luke. Urgent. Stop. Must translate medical precepts into native tongues also. Stop. Ridiculous. Here now, send this. Cannot. Stop. Is no native written language. Stop. Not even alphabet. Stop. Okay, sir. Got it off. Read it, Luke. (laughs) What? What does it say? Sorry, sir. The telegram says, You supposedly expert grammar and rhetoric. Stop. Invent written language for them. Stop. Best get started at it, lad. She'll be coming soon. Like a tidal wave. Damnation. Why didn't she wait for a military escort? The escort is on the way. I've sent Menander on the Victrix Ironclad. He'll reach her at Secure and bring her here. That is, if you want her. How do you feel about her now? She was some girl I had to marry. I expected I would end up with a courtesan, a mistress. Why not? She meant nothing to me, and I meant nothing to her. All we were expected to do was breed. But now you've written about her in the dispatcher. She's been coming towards us for weeks. Toward me. I feel I know her better now than I did when she was standing before me, when I could see her. Damn it, though. Why didn't she wait for a military escort? When has she waited for anything? 
she was coming, but she wasn't in a hurry. There were villages and field hospitals all up the Indus. It was a war of over 500,000 men. There were over 100,000 casualties, and the count was rising. She stopped in the hospitals, brought her train of Calipodius's wife's service men, and found that the care was getting better. General Belisarius's blood-curdling orders were having an effect. But it was in the villages where her legend truly was made. Villages where the inhabitants spoke no known tongue, some guttural polyglot handed down from the dawn of time. Even they had heard her. And when she passed by, they came. They came to behold. They came to be touched. They came to be healed. There's another one, girl. Oh. They're heading toward us. What do you want us to do? What can we do? Stop. Let them pull alongside. Oh! Back it up, man. Back it up. Pull alongside. Sick! Sick! You help! You help me, boy! I can't heal this kind of sickness. I wish I could. Keep him cool and perhaps the fever will break. You understand? Cold. Cold water. Ellis, these villagers can't understand me. Nobody speaks their tongue. Wife! Wife, you touch. You touch, boy. But it will do no good. I'm not a saint. I'm not even a doctor. You touch, boy. Wife. Oh, very well. Curse it all to ruin. I'll touch him. <sighs> there. I touched him, goddammit. Satisfied? Him better soon. Touch of wife is healing touch. Listen to me. You have to get his fever down. Cold. Keep him cold. What's the use? I can't bear the look of agony on their faces. You help them. Nonsense. You can't tell them that. They don't come for nothing, girl. I'm feeding their ignorance. You are giving them hope. It may make a difference. I wish I could believe in the healing touch of the wife, but I don't. I don't even know who this wife is. I don't know if my husband wants me still. I don't know if I want him. There's only one way to find out. Go to the Iron Triangle. That's where he is. Calipodius the Blind. I suppose he really is blind? Yes, completely. It was a terrible wound. He's a man I've never truly met. Now I'm a woman he's never met. What the hell did I have in mind coming here? Why am I still trying to get to him? Sometimes the answer is in what we do. It may be that what we do is the only thing that matters. Tell them to keep rowing. Row, master! Heave away, man! Put your backs into it, you lazy swine! Sorry to wake you, Captain. Telegram, sir. Quite all right, Luke. What's the telegram say? Captain Menander and the Victrix have reached them. Thank God. She and her companions are safely on board the steamship. Luke, how does this place look? 
It's hardly fit for Melissini, but I imagine it will do for your wife if all they say is true. Any other messages from Anna? No, just these bills. Well, whatever else, she still spends money like a Melissini. Before she's done, that banker will be the richest man in India. You have it to spare, sir. Yes. Yes, I don't begrudge her any of it either. I wonder what she'll be like. Mistress Serenites, I have been instructed by General Belisarius to see to your safety. I wish you wouldn't touch these unclean people who approach the boat. Keep wishing, Captain Menander. I am not under the command of General Belisarius, and I'll do as I think fit. Yes, ma'am. Mark one off the starboard bow. Mark one, two, three, four transport boats. What the hell? What is it, Captain? It's an ambush. That's what it is. Those are Malwa boats coming toward us? They are. It's almost inconceivable. To be here, they must have carried those boats for miles and miles over the empty desert. You need to take cover, girl. Your man is right. But what's the point of it? There's no way they could be a real threat to the legions, is there? There is not. We need to hide you away. Now. It's you they're after. They're all dead men. Why? In the name of God, she's just a woman. You wouldn't be saying that if you'd been with us the past few weeks. You're right, I suppose. So, where can we put her? Up there, the Puckle Gun turret. It's surrounded by iron except for the top. It's the safest place on the ship. Do as he says, Lady Serenites. Keep yourself safe and allow us to defend this ship. I completely agree, but I can climb up there on my own. Both of you concentrate on stopping those pirates. Ugh. 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 Mother Mary, this dress again. Ugh. It. Sir, emergency message from Amu Daria. Luke! There's been an attack on the river. Large Malwa force. Sir, it's the Victrix they're after. Anna's on that ship. Yes, sir. But how did the enemy get there? There's nothing but desert to the south. I'll tell you how. The Malwa have hauled those boats across the wasteland on a suicide mission. I was a fool not to have foreseen the possibility. Not your fault, sir. Like hell it isn't. We were all so busy being entertained by her journey that we didn't think that our enemy will have heard of her, too. Damn it. No point in sending the Justinian. By the time the ship got there, the battle would be over. As you said, the battle will soon be over. Amudaria will tell us what the outcome was. And if she's still on her way to me. So we wait. We're getting closer. Concentrate your fire on the nearest one, men. Ready? Aim? Fire! Stand firm! Halt or I'll shoot! Nonsense. Help me over the edge of this thing, will you? What the? Oh, it's you, Lady Serenides. Does everyone on this ship know I am on board? You're the reason we're here, Lady Serenides. The general sent us to fetch you. Yes. Help me in. Now step up, your ladyship. Uh, 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 there. 
What is your name? Stavros, ma'am. Well, Stavros, how can I be of help? There's hardly room in this turret to move about. Not with that gown you're wearing. It's supposed to be a uniform, and besides, it's half the size of my old one. Well, yes, you could be of help, Lady Serenides. Yes? We're outnumbered. There are maybe 200 of them in those boats. If even one of the boats grapples with us, we'll be overwhelmed. How can we stop them? That's where we come in, lady. This is what's known as a puckle gun. Looks to be some sort of giant revolver. Yeah, exactly, Lady Serenides. It's a revolving cannon. There's a box of preloaded cylinders behind you. Now, if you'd be so kind as to hand me the new one when I'm out and take away the old, that'd speed things up a bit. I can do that. All right, the cylinders get hot, ma'am. And the blowback from the gun can scorch you as well. It's a good thing I have on all this fabric then, isn't it, Stavros? I can use the hem of my dress to handle the hot cylinder. That you can, your ladyship. Do call me Anna. No, couldn't do that, your ladyship. Suppose not. Here they come. Get ready. Buckle gun's quite loud, your ladyship. A little closer. A little closer. Namaste, you bastards, now! I can't see. What's happening, Stavros? Got a bunch of them, and I think I blew a hole in their boat. Hand me the cylinder. Here it is, milady. It's hot. Don't be a baby. Give it to me. Here's another. Got it. Keep that hot one away from the cartridge box, milady. I'm not an idiot, Stavros. No, Lady Serenides, you most definitely are not. What do we do when we run out of preloaded cylinders? There's individual cartridges in there. I'll reload them quick as I can. Nonsense. I can do that. Just remember, pointy side down, milady. Why, you ignorant... Yes, pointy side down, Stavros. All right, here comes some more. I must take a quick look. Stay down, Lady Serenides. So many of them, so many. That was close, Lady Serenides. Anna, keep your fool head below the metal, will you? I take your point, Stavros. Now hand me that cylinder and let's get at them. Yes, here it is. And here's the next. Guess it's true what they say. The wife of Calipodius the Blind is different. Very different. Well, get used to it. There's about to be a lot more women like me. Okay, here comes another. What about Nahi? What about Nahi, you bastards? This has been part three of Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint, set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric Flint and David Drake, starring Tracy Coppage as Anna and Paul Kilpatrick as Calipodius, featuring Lex Wilson as Illus, Jeff Aguiar as Belisarius, Izzy Berger as Sister Catherine, and Rika Daniel as Irina of Persia, with Carter. Paris Battle, Samuel Montgomery Blinn, Gray Reinhardt, PJ Mask, and Koki Daniel. Sound engineers, Barry Jacob and Craig Brandwine. Music by Maddie Karras and Sherry Leone. Adaptation and script by Tony Daniel. Directed by Jerome Davis. Bain Books publisher, Tony Weiskopf. This audio drama is copyright 2014 by Bain Books. Bane Audio Drama from Bane Books, the heart of science fiction and fantasy. For more Bane Audio Drama and great Bane Books, visit Bane.com. We hope you have enjoyed this production.
And now here is part 27 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, and it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magical-based apocalypse. These are known as the Grim Noir Knights. If the Grim Noir are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 27 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 11 People ask me how I do it. It is hard to explain. There is just this thing inside like a battery. It charges up on its own, and I can turn it on when I really need it. The battery runs down fast, too fast, and it takes time to charge back up, but when it is on, I can feel the individual pistons thumping the air over the wings. I can see the propeller turning. Everything. It is like time slows down. Well, mister, let's just say that when I'm on, I own that sky. Lieutenant James H. Jimmy Doolittle Interview after breaking the world airspeed record in a Curtis R4C parasite, 1927. Mar Pacifica, California. You've only got a finite amount of power available at any one time. Lance was limping back and forth on the estate's backyard near the swimming pool. The sound of crashing waves could be heard in the distance. If you get stupid and burn it when you don't need to, then you'll be weak when you really need it. Right, Francis? How's the knee feeling? Francis's head snapped up from where he was loafing on a nearby bench. He'd obviously not been paying attention. Um, better? Wake up, Francis. I need your help. Yeah, like I was saying, don't waste power on Flash. Flash is for chumps. Get in, kick their ass, and get out. If you run through too much power too fast, you're on your own until it replenishes itself. Got it? Sure, Faye said happily. The last two days had been rather exciting for her. She'd already mastered a couple of the simplest spells which had impressed everyone. She was playing with magic in ways that Grandpa never would have allowed. It was even more challenging than attempting to ride a cow. Don't mess around. Go fast. Get out. He grabbed the rope that was tied to the cloth dummy that was hanging from a big wooden frame. A pair of boards, supposedly representing swords, hung from it. A red rising sun had been painted on its chest. Show me. She traveled directly behind the dummy and stabbed the wooden practice knife Lance had given her into its back. 
By the time Lance had jerked the rope to spin it, she was already gone, standing in front of it, and jabbed it again. Lance pulled it straight up so a board would hit her, but she was too quick and leapt back, disappearing and reappearing on the other side, still in motion. She planted the knife square into the rising sun. Now, Francis, Lance ordered as he let go of the rope. This time the board moved way too fast, and a different angle, and it clipped her right in the shin. Face screamed as she traveled, coming at it from another angle only to catch another board in the arm. The knife fell from limp fingers. She traveled back just as she hit the ground at Lance's feet. Ow, ow, ow! Faye's fingers weren't responding, and a big purple bruise was spreading on her leg. Thanks a lot, Francis. Hey, you said you wanted to go faster, he said as he released his power and the dummy collapsed in a pile of fabric and wood. Sorry. Just imagine if that was an iron guard's katana instead of a chunk of hickory. Lance sighed. He did that a lot when teaching her. Jane, would you kindly put our young traveler back together, please? The healer frowned as she looked up from her book. She was wearing a white bathing suit, enormous black sunglasses, and reclining on a pool chair, enjoying the sun. Healers had the advantage of sunbathing without worrying about getting burned. This is the last one for today, Lance. I used up most of my power fixing up the general this morning. Fine, fine, we'll do something a little less physical next. Water was rolling involuntarily from Faye's eyes, but she didn't think that fell under her self-prohibition on crying when she'd just gotten her arm broken. Less physical? Can I drive the car again? Can we go fast? It ain't a tractor. Of course we'll go fast. I'd be happy to shoot more of Mr. Brownie's machine guns, too. Shooting those off the cliffs, it certainly made the little thirty-two Ivor Johnson she'd bought seem inadequate. Jane padded over daintily. The soles of her feet were soft, and there were plenty of hard spots in the ground. It made Faye want to laugh. She hadn't owned her own pair of shoes until she'd arrived in El Nido. Jane's gentle hands rested on her arm, and a moment later the now-familiar hot feeling moved through her body. The swelling began to go down immediately. Be more careful next time, hon. I won't always be around to fix you up, Jane admonished her. Delilah had wandered up to see what was going on. She was the most standoffish of everyone at the estate, and Faye still hadn't really had a conversation with her. She didn't think that Delilah was a snob at all, just that she had a hard time talking to people. She seemed like she was kind of broken inside. Faye could understand. She'd probably be bitter herself if she hadn't been able to explore the world inside her own head. What are you doing? Delilah asked. We're teaching Faye how to use her power to fight, Francis said proudly. She's improved immensely. That's what you call it, Delilah scowled at the dummy. Can I try? I suppose, Lance said, taking the slack out of the rope. Get ready, Francis. She cracked her knuckles and walked over to the dummy, pausing to look at Faye still sitting on the ground. Let me show you how it's done, little girl. The dummy started to spin. Delilah closed her eyes for just a moment. There was no physical change, but suddenly she just seemed different. Her posture shifted and she hunched low, the visible muscles in her forearms, neck, and ankles seeming to harden. She covered the remaining distance faster than Faye could comprehend. 
she put her fist right through the rising sun. Francis's brow furrowed in concentration as he swung the boards at her. Delilah blocked one with her forearm. She caught the other one in her bare hand, wrenched it free, and used it to cleave both the dummy's legs off in one swipe. Next, she grabbed it by the face, tore it clean off, snapping the rope in two, spun once and pitched the head clear into the ocean before the body had even hit the ground. It had taken about two seconds. She stepped back and straightened her dress. Her body seemed to soften and her posture returned to normal. There you go. Francis and Jane stood there with their mouths agape. Lance just grunted. Great. Now we need a new dummy. Delilah came over and sat on the grass next to Faye. Listen, you're not going to learn to fight by hitting a canvas sack. How about you work with me? I don't think you could hurt me if you tried anyway, and it would be a lot more realistic. Jane spoke up. I can't mend her if you rip her head off. Shove it, sister, Delilah called back. What do you say? It couldn't hurt. Well, actually, it could hurt a whole lot, but this was probably Delilah's idea of being nice. Sure, tearing someone's legs off with their arm could be useful. You'll probably have to work up to that. Come on, stand up. Delilah arched her back, kicked her legs, and was instantly on her feet. Hit me as hard as you can. I'll just give you a little love tap when you screw up. Delilah, Lance muttered. Relax, squirrel boy. I won't hurt her. Much? Her smile was kind of scary. You don't have to do this, Faye, Lance suggested. Brutes are the reason I carry a forty-four special stoked with hot wad cutters. Delilah growled at him. I'm just saying is all. Faye stood up. Her arm and leg were feeling much better already. Delilah was waiting for her in the center of the lawn. Francis and Lance stepped back. Jane picked up her book, but apparently she'd found something more interesting for once and didn't open it. Lance had shown her how to hit something without breaking her hand, explaining that you always used your hard bits to hit their soft bits, but she wasn't good at it. Surely Delilah would help her get better? Okay, what do I do? Hit me, stupid, Delilah said. Faye didn't like being called names. She traveled, landing right behind Delilah and punched her hard in the back. Faye screamed on impact as the bones in her fist crashed into something that felt like a concrete slab. Momentarily distracted, she didn't see the backhand that rattled her brain and sent her rolling across the lawn. Say just a little tap for when you screw up. That's how you learn. It was like being run over by a mad cow. Jane started forward, but Faye managed to spit out something that sounded like, I've got it. She struggled to her feet. Delilah seemed impressed that Faye had gotten back up. Lesson one, never hit a brute with your bare hands. Our power makes our tissues tougher than normal. When I'm burning full power, pistol bullets bounce off. You've got skin like a rhinoceros, Jane suggested. I can see that from here. Don't go there, porcelain doll, or I'll show you a rhino, Delilah snapped. Lesson two, only suckers fight fair. Come on, Faye. I heard how you swore you'd kill Maddie. That goomba could snap me in half. If you can't hurt me, how do you expect to put a dent in a big man? Let's see what you got. Faye traveled, appearing just off to Delilah's left side, and this time she used her heavy boot to kick her in the leg. 
By the time the arm came flying around, she was gone back on the other side and kicked her in the back of the other leg. She traveled back to where she'd started, smiling, proud that she'd tagged the brute twice and gotten away. Delilah was wearing a sort of work dress. It actually cut off above the knees, which Mr. Browning surely found scandalous, but it made more sense when she covered half the yard in two steps and kicked Faye in the teeth. When the fuzzy lights quit spinning around her head, Faye realized that she wasn't dead, this wasn't heaven, and that the white angel looking down at her was Jane. Way to go, you big bully. The heat of Jane's power radiated through her face, but her skull still felt like it had been broken in half. She said she wanted to learn. Poor little white trash Oki wants to run with the big dogs. Life is hard. She better get used to it. Ah, I even turned my power off before I hit her that time, Delilah said. My dad was one of the toughest brutes the Grim Noir had ever seen, and Maddie beat him like a rented mule. He'll eat her. Your father was probably drunk at the time, too, Lance spat. Back off, Delilah. Well, look who's talking. The healing was done. The heat died down, and Faye used Jane's shoulder to pull herself up. I'm ready. Delilah was stunned. You don't give up, do you? Nope. What was the lesson that time? Delilah shrugged. Don't mess with a brute. Okay, Faye answered as she traveled. Delilah tensed, but Faye didn't land anywhere near her. Instead, she landed next to the practice dummy and grabbed one of the heavy hickory boards. She reappeared directly in Delilah's face and clubbed her like she was swinging at a baseball. Delilah rocked back and Faye appeared behind her and hit her in the back of the head so hard that the woods stung her palms. Faye reappeared twenty feet away, still holding the board and panting. Grandpa liked baseball. Said it was the best American sport. He taught me how to bat, she shouted. You little snot, Delilah said, striding forward, rubbing the back of her head. She charged, leaping across the space and landed in the empty spot Faye had just left. Where? Faye clocked her with a club again, this time in the back of the leg. She was gone by the time Delilah kicked through the air. She spun, searching, and didn't see the fist-sized rock launched from the other end of the pool. Faye shouted with glee as the rock hit her straight in the nose. He taught me to pitch overhand, too. Delilah cursed and raised her hands, serious now. Faye ran up onto the diving board, screaming as she leapt into the pool, except there was no splash. Delilah spun, expecting her to appear from behind but instead Faye came out of the air over her head. The impact was so loud that everyone in the yard cringed. Faye traveled before she hit the ground and was gone. Delilah went to her knees, cringing at the indentation in her shoulder. Oh, I'm turning it out now. Faye came around from behind Francis. He jumped in surprise. Remember, don't tear my head off, because that would be cheating, Faye taunted. She could tell that Delilah was angry and burning her power hard now. Her body seemed different, hard and dangerous, just like Lance had said she was using it up too fast. Faye was only using hers in tiny pops, and she'd never actually run out of power before in her life. But she figured she would know when she got close. She just had to outlast her opponent. You're right, Delilah, this is fun. Then she traveled. Delilah spun, lashing out randomly as Faye disappeared. She hesitated, but the traveler didn't arrive anywhere near her. Where are you? Up here, Faye waved from the roof of the estate. 
come get me. Delilah was mad. She ran across the yard, took two big strides, and landed in a crouch on the roof of the porch, two more bounds, and she was on top of the shingles with Fay. Brutes could climb fast. Oh, you're dead meat, you hick. Faye waited until Delilah was almost on top of her before traveling. She landed in the yard, back where it all started. What are you doing up there, silly? She called, waited for Delilah's frustrated scream, then focused hard, appeared in the air directly behind the brute, and swung the hickory stick with all of her strength. Faye was a skinny girl, but she'd been doing manual labor and bucking hay for three years and had busted more than a few bulls in the snout with a shovel handle, and she laid into Delilah like she was a particularly nasty Holstein. The stick broke in half, but Delilah rocked forward, off balance, and tumbled from the tall roof. She landed flat on her back on the tiles next to the pool with a terrible thump. Faye appeared next to her a second later and squatted down. Delilah grunted as she tried to sit up, her power momentarily exhausted from hardening her body for the impact. What was the lesson that time? Faye asked innocently. Delilah closed her eyes and sank back to the tiles. She held out her hand in truce, and Faye slowly took it. The lesson that time is that you aren't as stupid a hick as you pretend to be. She actually smiled. Faye could tell that it was a real one this time. She'd made a new friend. That was part 27 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And entitlement to a trio of Sphinxian freeholds as well as a sky-filling laser barrage of Manticoran ground defenses fired in simultaneous salute to David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope. Thanks also to Tony Weisskopf, who doesn't need a freehold, since she is basically the potentate of the whole system. And thanks so much to the cast and crew of Islands as well. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.